uh, just by way of information too, just so you know, I, I did teach forever in here, and we had uh, we kept having light coming through here. So I actually ran down. This has now been like ten years ago. I ran down to Home Depot, and I bought a shower curtain and a blackout thing, and it's still here. It kind of blocks that out a little bit. So that's actually a shower curtain behind that. So. Okay, uh, thank you for making the trip over here. We're going to try this for a few weeks, see how this goes. There are a number of things I like about this chapel. It, it, it warms up quicker. Uh, the acoustics are better. And but the screen is what I'm after. It's a lot easier to see that as opposed to the small one over here. So uh, for some of you, that means a little longer drive, some a little shorter, somewhere in the, the middle. So, but thanks for making the trip. Uh, and then just a reminder, too, about uh, donations for the first-time Temple Patron Fund. Uh, you decide how much you want to do that. So. All right. Uh, announcements and uh, things that happened over the weekend. Okay. Yeah. Well, well tell, us, tell us what happened. Jared? So you haven't even been a, a full member like 24 hours. You're just still. So, see, it, when we talk about that, when we talk about someone not being like, not they're still wet behind the ears. Dude, you're still wet behind the ears. But man, it is good to have you here. That is all right. Good for you. It's um, a good place to be. All right. Anything else you heard over the weekend? Um, any announcements? There is a new temple film, and, and I know the, the last time we had a new temple film, it's just like, let's not say a lot about it, we'll just do it. They put it in the Deseret News. <laughs> I, I think they're saying, excited, go, go see this. We're not going to go into a lot of detail, but just get to the temple and go enjoy the new temple film. Okay? Good. Yeah? We answered the phone in Cinemark now. Because you know... That now, Sister Jones, and, you know, in about six months, they're going to go, okay, so when's the new one coming yes, right. <laughs> And we kept the old one for, what, 20 years? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Aren't we still using that one we had just a few months ago? Oh, yeah. Remember, there's always been two in rotation, so now, so now we have the two. All right. Um, anything else from this weekend? Yeah. And they, they were there. They were here auditioning for high school seniors. <laughs> ah, so so BYU was here auditioning, and then they did a little performance. The Baroque Ensemble. Baroque Ensemble. Cool. All right. So when's the next MCO concert? Is that summer? April. April. April 25th? Last Saturday in April. Last Saturday in April. To be Ah, to be Good. I look forward to that. Auditions for MCO Thursday and Friday. Okay, so talk to one of you guys and for choir and orchestra. Awesome. All right. Yeah. Well, no. Some of you may have met Robert Bielovich that worked over the storehouse a couple of years ago. President Blake called him to be a missionary all the way to where that because he was not a member of the church. <laughs> 
Yeah, we kind of reserved the badges for members. <laughs> yeah. Well, he served very faithfully. He was ordered to water retired, and uh, we had supper with him last Saturday night. And uh, he was baptized a year ago, and he and his wife were still in the temple. They're getting ready to put their papers in the mission. There we go. So actually, it's going to get to be official now. That's awesome. All right. Well, good. Well, let's go ahead and uh, get started today if we can. Now, I'm going to apologize at the onset a little bit for this, for the first few minutes. Whenever we talked about when we were going through the Doctrine and Covenants, how important it was to know the historical backdrop as to why the sections were given in the Doctrine and Covenants. So to do that, you need a good dose of church history so you can put it all in context. Uh, as we roll into the Gospels, same thing. There needs to be a historical con- background so that you understand why the Savior was doing what He did, how He did it, and what He was talking about. Okay, So, so brace yourself. This is going to kind of be Jerusalem 101 in a quick nutshell. You ready? Okay, so we're going to start off with a little history. Uh, when, does, when do the Jews... End up in Babylon. Remember your Book of Mormon history. Right after 600 BC. Okay, about 586, I think, something like that. They get they're completely taken off to Babylon. Right about the time as Lehi and his family's getting out of Dodge. Okay, so they're holding off. Then they level the they level the temple. They, they sack the city and leave it in tatters and haul everybody up. That's what Babylon did. Babylon pulled people out of their places and took them home. Took, took them back to Babylon. So we get this long period of time with Israel in exile. And they're stuck in Babylon. And then uh, Babylon is con- conquered by Cyrus. He comes in takes it over, and then after uh, a number of years, like 50, 60 years, something like that, then he sends the Jews back to Jerusalem. The first wave, I think, is something like 20,000 of them, and there's going to be a couple of waves as they go back. Well, they go back and they find a city that has been destroyed, Uh, the temple is leveled, there's not much there. They make a half-hearted effort to rebuild the temple, it's not much. But an interesting thing, when they go back under Ezra, Ezra then discovers the Torah again. And they're going to go back and they're going to read the Torah. And this is the five books of the the Old Testament. And they're going to kind of reacquaint everybody. So they have everybody sit and listen while they read through all of it. So we get all reacquainted with the Torah. Now, funny thing about this, though, is that when, without getting too complicated, when... uh, Civilizations have had the true gospel and then they apostatize. They do an interesting thing. Either they will take the literal things of the gospel and make them symbolic, or they will take the symbolic things and make them literal. So let me give you an example. Uh, as, as the church kind of uh, was lost in the first century, uh, for Catholicism, as they were trying to put together as best they could they get to the sacrament, and the, set, and the Savior says, symbolically, this is my body. Take and eat. Well, what happened with the Catholic Church as it progressed? It made it more literal. They went from being symbolically to, to literal. Okay? Or like when the Nephites were probably, we think, down among the Mayans. You know, this idea of you must have a broken heart, contrite spirit. 
Well, as the Mayans became apostate, what they do? We're literally going to have a broken heart, you know. So we're going to—that's what sacrifices are: breaking a heart, kind of thing. It's the symbolic that becomes really literal. Okay. Now, this is what happened with Torah. This is what happened when the Jews came back to Jerusalem. They had the Torah, and so the the Torah. If, if you ask, if you ask one of your uh, friends, another church, you said. We have the priesthood. What would they say? We have the Bible. The Bible is sola scriptura. There's no other God, words of God other than what's here. And by the way, this Bible gives us authority to do what we do. Sola scriptura. Okay? This is what happened with uh, the Jews when they got back out of exile. Torah was sola scriptura. This is our authority. So the, the Torah has to be right. So, for instance, if the Torah says you're supposed to keep the Sabbath day holy, how do you know whether you're keeping the Sabbath day holy? A lot of rules. And then more rules. It's kind of like the IRS tax code. <laughs> We're just going to add more and more and more and, and more interpretations on that. And there was a group of scholars underneath Ezra called scribes, and the scribes' first job was to transcribe and make copies of Torah. But on top of that, they then begin to be the experts about what is Sabbath observant and how and when it's not. If it's Sabbath day and you spit, how far does it roll? Too far, and that's working. You know, how many grains of wheat can you gather? That's working. And it's all got to be very, very dependent on the law and what was written. Okay? So we get this. This thing going on, and then the other one, there's two things. One, and then the other one, not only are they becoming really literal about the scriptures, what if there's nothing written? Now what do we rely on to know whether we're being righteous or not? Ah, we use the oral, tra- the oral traditions that have been passed down from the fathers. And that's called the Mishnah. And from time to time I'll quote a little bit from the Mishnah. And for instance, the Mishnah is the one that says... Uh, Joseph's coat of many colors was actually Adam's coat of skins. Is that written anywhere in the Torah? No. But it was passed down. And by the time we get to the time of the Savior, the Mishnah is about on equal footing with the Torah. It's kind of been codified. It's now part of the canon. Okay? Uh, Let me give you another one. Uh, Eve was Adam's second wife. There was a first wife by the name of Lilith, and she wasn't very obedient, so Adam had to dump her, and her he was the second wife. Mishnah. Okay? You, you didn't know that, did you? Okay, that's Lilith. And that, that's Mishnah speaking. How is she not obedient? I won't go into that. It's kind of embarrassing, and there were some things that she wasn't willing to do in terms of intimacy. Google it. Right. From Ezra coming forward, when they came back, they became hyper focused on we have to know what the law says. So this, where they were making up all these. Like that became a problem later. So, if, if Ezra's over, the, over that, 
Did it start out? It started out kind of as a good idea. So it just progresses. Now, out of that, though, is going to come... Hang on to that idea, because now it's going to get kind of supercharged a little bit. Because right, because now we get down to 323 B.C., and now we're going to introduce another factor into it, and that is... No. Alexander the Great. The Greeks sweep through. And part of what they're going to do is that they're going to conquer... <coughs> Uh, Jerusalem. Now, in the Greek, if you think about what you know about the Greeks, if they're going to conquer somebody, the Greeks as a people, uh, what do they tend to believe in? Lots of gods. Pantheon of gods, like Zeus and all those kind of things. What else? The philosophy of? What's the, what's the main philosophy of the Greeks? I know, I told you, it's going to be a history lesson. Plato, knowledge, uh, and it is that man's knowledge, it trumps everything. So God gave us the knowledge, and now man's all important. The physical body, all of that, okay? That all sound familiar? Do you believe that man's knowledge trumps God's knowledge? Well, that God has filled man with knowledge, so now you are, it's your job through Socrates and Plato and stuff like that to learn to become great. So it's about man. It's a very, it's a very hedonistic Man's focus, man's in the most important part here. And the gods mess with us, but still at the end of the day it's about man, and man's the most important. Okay? None of this makes any sense today, right? <coughs> yeah. Spiritually, that sounds like a three-year-old. It sounds like what? Like a three-year-old. Yes. Oh, of very much. Is very egocentric. That's right. Three-year-olds and thirteen-year-olds. <laughs> it's about me. The world revolves this way. It's about me. Okay? And so the Greeks would do that, and because their philosophy was superior, if they're going to sweep in and they're going to conquer a people, they turn them Greek. It's all going to become Greek. So they're going to come in, and they're going to not tolerate very well the Torah, and the traditions, it's about Greek is the best part. So, so what do they start speaking? Greek. Now, they were speaking Aramaic when they came out of Babylon. The, he, the Torah is in Hebrew. So you got the Hebrew, and they were some speak Aramaic, but they're all learning Greek. And they're learning Greek philosophy. Okay, now... If we're going to drop that into this kind of a society, now you're going to get two reactions to that. Okay, number one, it's going to be the ones that are uh, that are pro-Hellenized, pro-Greek, who are going to really get excited about the Greek stuff. They're kind of uh, and and so they're, they're sometimes they're the ones that are more rich and they're more in power, and so that is the Sadducees. They're going to tie tie into all of this stuff. Greek is cool. We're going to try and mix it with what we do, but, but Greek is cool. And if Greek is cool, then we're more likely to stay in power. They're the ones that be like into pop culture. You know, if it's the uh, here comes the Oscars, they're going to be the ones that are all excited about who's doing what. It's just like they're just very caught up in the Greek philosophy and stuff. That's the Sadducees. 
Okay? Now, if we have the Sadducees on one side that are all really excited about all this Greek stuff, on the other side we would have who? The Pharisees, absolutely. That's where those guys come from. It's about the law, dang it. Don't mess with the law. And we're going to make very sure that you're not breaking the law. And if you're breaking the law, we'll stone you. And a fast way to remember also, so so for the Greeks, did they necessarily believe in a lot of magical stuff? Not really. I mean, there's the gods and stuff like that. But really the stuff about angels and... It's kind of hokey. So when it comes to things like resurrection, uh, the Pharisees didn't believe in resurrection. Therefore, they are sad, you see. (laughs) The Pharisees did believe in resurrection, so they are fair, you see. That's a way to remember. Um... But these are the ones that are going to begin to push back. They hate the Hellenization that's going on. And then the Essenes uh, and the uh, Zealots. And there's a whole group of them that are just pushing back and trying to hold desperately onto the traditions in this wave of worldliness that's coming from the Greeks. Okay? It's almost like far-right rigid Christians on one side and kind of limousine liberals on the other kind of thing. And they're battling... So she said she's saying in the twenties we kind of went through that where there was a lot of this is the cool new stuff uh, and they're really focused like on Europe they're more advanced and they're cooler than we are kind of thing so it's all the new stuff and then those that are holding desperately to old values do we see that going on right now? Oh, man. There's nothing really new here. And if you can see this, then it will make sense what happens and how the Savior handles things. Because this is where the roots are, and then it just gets progressively worse over the centuries. Does that make sense? Okay. What is Hellenized? Where did that come from? I don't know. Anybody know where the term Hellenization comes from? Actually, I think it comes from Helen of Troy. Oh, that makes sense. They, you know, the Trojan horse and that story. And they've been Hellenized. Yes, so it's from Helen of Troy. At least that's my understanding. That's as good as any. Okay. Shannon, you agree with that? Does that make sense? Cousin? Sure. Okay, thank you. Okay. So, now let's move forward in history a little bit. Uh, We get to 301. Alexander dies, a young man. His, his generals take over, one of them's Ptolemy, uh, who, may, who mainly has Egypt. And the other one, and I never can pronounce this one very well, uh, Seleucus, Seleucus, he got Syria. They just kind of divided the known world up among these generals. So they started kind of fighting among themselves. But uh, th- these guys are going to kind of start rebuilding here. And so, um, now... We get down to 198, and, and uh, notice we start getting a little closer and closer to the time of the Savior. Uh, there's a uh, kind of, to use the Roman term, a pro, a pro uh, Rotelia, whoever's in charge of this area, from the Greeks, uh, Antiochus, 
who is a very benevolent guy and he's allowing them to continue to have all of their the Jewish traditions and he's not messing very much with it. He does a good job. However, his son in 167 Antiochus IV, bad guy. He's the one that says, we've allowed this stuff to go on too long under my dad. Stomp it out. Get rid of it. Let's just attack him. Okay? So he comes in and he starts to try and eliminate Jewish tradition, Jewish culture. He plants a uh, uh, statue of Zeus in the temple and then sacrifices a pig on That'll do it, right? So in response to that kind of action... You guess what happens? They're uprising. This is the uprising of the... This is the Maccabees. The Maccabees fight back. It starts under Matthias. Uh, and they, they attack. And they actually, in a lot of kind of guerrilla warfare that goes on and on and on, they actually defeat the Greeks and, and, and uh, toss them out. And then they, and this is actually during this battle is when we get Hanukkah. You know, the, the zealots are trying to hold on to the temple. They run out of oil. The, the lamp burns longer and longer and longer and long after it shouldn't have, so we get the miracle of Hanukkah. The Hanukkah celebration comes out of, during the rebellion of the Maccabees, pushing back against the Greeks. Okay? This is when... So now the ruling class becomes the Hasmodeans, uh, Jewish royalty, and they're going to get about 100 years of kind of self-rule, self-determination. So they have some... Uh, they have their own little kind of royal families in there with the roots in the Maccabees, uh, Matthias, or Matthias. Now, part of the problem with these guys is... Uh, if, if anybody's still going to kind of be in charge of Jerusalem, it's going to have its remnants in the Sadducees. Because they still like the Hellenized things. They were the ones with the power and the money and all of that. So who's going to push back against these guys? The Zealots. The, those that are holding tight to the law. And so they begin to really make the Zealots just drive them nuts. They now rule Jerusalem. They, they now rule uh, Israel. Are they... They are Jewish. They're Jews? They're Jews. They're Jewish, but they have strong Greek leanings. Just like the Sadducees. We're Jewish, but we really like that Greek stuff. We like the rich stuff. Okay? And so that's why the Zealots begin to push, and the Zealots ultimately start to take over, try to battle them. There's like 400 of them going to massive sit-in. They're trying to control the temple. He just drives them nuts. And so the Asmodians go, go, well, let's see, we need some help, otherwise we're going to lose our power. Uh, who's the big bully in town now that we can invite to the party? Because another power has arisen in the world. The Romans. Yes. And, and believe it or not, it's these guys, and they make appeal to the Romans and say, come on in, come help us. They ask them in? They ask them in. Yes, that's one of those things that's not... The Romans were there initially at their request. The 
And because the zealots were taking over, when the Romans finally come in, they will kill 400 zealots. But the, they request um, the... Uh, blocking on his name. It's the, the Roman curator at the time, the, the Roman uh, Caesar at the time. Uh, it doesn't pay it that much mind. Uh, so they will then make another request. He's still not listening. Uh, and finally, after. Uh, I can't believe I'm blocked. Pompey, thank you. It's Pompey. Under Pompey. He finally says, okay, 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 I'll send somebody. And it just so happens that uh, Mark Antony, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, is, is like moving across, coming out of Babylon, through Syria. Pompey gets message to him. Uh, these guys keep requesting our help. Why don't you go kind of conquer Judea? So he actually rides right down, right up to the Temple Mount, and, and parks his chariot right in the temple. Okay? And they then take over. This is where the Roman uh, Empire begins to have its control. Now, the Romans are interesting in the fact that um, they, they kind of they have a tendency instead of like destroy a city, haul everybody back home, they tend to leave things in place. So they're not going to get rid of all the Greek stuff. They're just going to control it. So in a case like this, they then put in charge who? Who, who now gets to be the local guy in charge who happens to not be Jewish by birth, but he's going to marry one of the Hasmonean princesses, so he's now Jewish by religion and by marriage. Herod the Great. Absolutely. Okay, we're getting closer now to the time of the Savior. See how this all kind of begins to come to... Okay, so this is 63 B.C. Here comes Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the great builder. He's going to build a lot. Uh, he's going to build Masada. He's going to build uh, places for the Romans to be. He's going to... Uh, just a lot of building projects. And most importantly, if he's going to really want these Jewish people... To really, really like him, what does he really need to rebuild? The temple. So now he starts on this massive building project, and this really is the second building of the temple. This is the second temple. There was a kind of bad one when they first got back from Babylon. This is the second building of the temple, and it's massive. And it's and, and, and square foot, it's actually bigger than the Temple of Solomon. That's the idea. It's going to be bigger. Now, on one, so, so he's doing all these great things. He's a big uh, push behind the uh, Olympic Games. Uh, he, Herod the Great, on one side, he's this great benefactor of Rome, of Rome. But on the other side, bad dude. He will ultimately uh, kill his wife, uh, his sons, anybody that's going to kind of threaten him. And this is the murder of the innocents. We'll come under Herod the Great. Questions on that so far? Yeah. Why would the Lord accept that temple that Herod the Great Oh, perfect question. Why would the Lord... So if this was actually built by Herod the Great, and now, remember by this time, 
the Ark of the Covenant is gone. They're going to have to kind of rebuild the... They actually bring back the golden candlestick and the altars of incense and stuff that have been hauled off of Babylon. But they don't have the Ark of the Covenant anymore. Why, why would the Lord treat that this temple with such reverence? Great question. Because it was on the same spot and they were trying to do whatever they could to... It was kind of the only one that was really available there. So the Lord's going to give it some credence. Angels, we're about to see the angels give it some credence. But it never had, at the temp, time of Solomon, and the Shinha, the, the cloud of the Lord descends on it and everything, that never happened with, the, with this temple. This does not have the same buzz. We don't know if it was as ornate as the temple of Solomon. Okay. All right, so that brings us to now. Okay? So questions on any of this? Make sense? Now you've had your great history lesson for the week. Be fun for family home evening. Let's talk about the Hellenization of Jerusalem. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Yeah, we can mark Anthony as our ancestor. And Mark, and mark Anthony as your ancestor. That's exactly. lovely. <laughs> Yay. Okay. So now let's bring us to the present. And, and I want to do one more thing before we kind of move forward. We're kind of setting the table here a number of places. Because if, if now things are about to change in Jerusalem, we're going to need some help here. And so I'm going to go to Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith, in talking about uh, the ancients, said this. The spirit of Elias is first, Elijah second, and Messiah last. So he's talking about three major spirits, callings that exist in the world in terms of preaching the gospel. First is Elias, second is Elijah, finally you get uh, Messiah. <coughs> Elias is a forerunner to prepare the way. And the spirit and power of Elijah is to come after, holding the keys of power. Building the temple to the capstone, placing the seals of the Melchizedek priesthood upon the house of Israel, making all things ready. Then Messiah comes to his temple, which is last of all. Okay, now here's my question. Why would there need to be an Elias? Why a forerunner? Couldn't we just skip over... Elias and just go right to Elijah. Why a need for a forerunner? The people aren't ready to accept the next steps because they need to have their hearts prepared to accept the next steps. Okay, she's saying the people aren't quite ready yet. They need to have their hearts prepared. Okay, what else? Why would we need an Elias? Why would we need a forerunner? Why does somebody need to go ahead? John the Baptist will be an Elias and he's not going to deny it. I'm an Elias. You're right. That's my job. And I, my job is to do some certain things. And it's going to take priesthood power to do it. So part of what's going to happen, we're going to come with priesthood power to do some certain things to get the people ready. Okay? Anybody had a blessing recently? Healing blessing? Do we do that just in one stage? 
No, we do it again. Two parts, right? The first part is a an anointing. It's a preparation for the second part, which is a sealing. Okay, it's almost like there's an Elias part and an Elijah part. It's a two-part, it's a two-stage process. Okay, so let's Okay, so the spirit of it, so we're going to talk about two spirits. One is the spirit of Elias. The job of a forerunner here is to prepare the way, to make straight, because, as Wendy mentioned, sometimes the people aren't quite ready yet, are they? To make straight what? That which is crooked? So confused. Yeah, they're confused, they don't exactly know. So the job of an Elias is to begin to straighten that out, and how are you going to do that? How do you make straight, how do you prepare the way of the Lord? Okay, you're going to have to repent. So how do they know that they need to repent? They need to be taught. Okay, so under the direction of kind of the, almost looks like the head Elias almost, is the angel Gabriel, who Joseph Smith revealed as Noah. Whoa. Noah, wait a minute, so what was Noah's job? He came and taught, right? That's what he was doing. He was preparing, he was kind of preparing people to meet God, right? And most of them did, much sooner than they had any idea that they would be. But he was a great preacher. He taught a lot. Enough so that, according to the inspired version, he would teach people, they would accept the gospel, they'd get caught up to Enoch. God. It isn't like there were only eight people that he saved. He was a great teacher. Yeah. And didn't you refer to the flood as a baptism of the world? Yeah, the, the flood was a baptism. So the teaching always comes just before the baptism. Good point. Okay. So an Elias does that. An Elias then is going to be a member of generally Ronnie Priesthood. Why? See, it's funny. Sometimes, well, what are the terms we use for the Aaronic priesthood? It is the preparatory. And we always, and we have a tendency to think with a preparatory priesthood for the Aaronic priesthood guys, these little deacons and teachers running around, uh, who are we preparing? We, we tend to think we're preparing them. They are operating under the power of Elias, which means they are preparing us. The purpose of the Aaronic priesthood is to prepare people for what? For the baptism of fire. Yeah. I was just going to say covenants, but I was also going to point out with the missionaries, how many times have you heard people say how many missionaries they went through before they were finally baptized? Yes. So all of those missionaries served as Elias. They do. It's, it's preparing. It's teaching, teaching, teaching. Moms, you're in the you're operating oftentimes when you sit with your children and you teach them, you're operating under the, I believe, under the direction of, a, of an alliance to prepare them for and to prepare them so that they will do what? Make covenants. That's what we're doing. When every time we're trying to get people ready to make promises and to make covenants with the Lord, that's Elias. That's the power of Elias. It's a forerunner to prepare them so they'll make covenants. Awesome. Okay? 
And, and that's why it is, by the way, that, that it's always a little bit confusing. We take these Aaronic priesthood guys, and I'm going to give you the Aaronic priesthood, that one of the keys of the Aaronic priesthood is the keys to ministering of angels. We go, wow, why wouldn't ministering of angels be with the Melchizedek priesthood? Because angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost. If you look to the Book of Mormon, it's the job of angels to do what? Teach the people, prepare them to make covenants, get them to a place where they'll do it. Isn't that awesome? That's the power of alliance. Okay? Prepare people to make covenants. And that's what the baptism is. Baptism of water is the making of a covenant with the Lord. It's a physical manifestation that says, I covenant with you that I will, I will descend the way that you did. And it is a mark that says, I am now, uh, I'm making a covenant with you, Heavenly Father. I am. To do what your son asked me to do. That's what baptism is. That's what we made a covenant. And so why is it the Aaronic priesthood administer the sacrament? It's a reminder of the covenant, isn't it? It's a renewing of the covenant. Tied to baptism. Okay, now that's the spirit of Elias. Now, along with that, then, so then there's two parts the spirit of Elias and the spirit of Elijah. And the job of Elijah is to seal the covenants. We made the covenants, we're not, we were prepared, we were taught, we made the covenants, and then we're going to have that sealed. And what, what, what will be sealed, the purpose of the sealing is what, what covenant was made, what promises you made, an agreement to do on this earth by the power of Elijah, then it will be sealed after this life. What's sealed on earth will be sealed in heaven. So now it's all it's connected, okay? No, see, it can happen here. Okay, that's what I thought. When you said it just made me think of this. Oh, yeah. Well, see, that's why it is that we have, we do baptismal covenants, and we're going to be baptized by water. And once we've been baptized by water, now we've opened the door for when the remission of sins will come, and the remission of sins comes when? When does the real cleansing occur in us? Baptism of fire. That's when we are cleansed by the Holy Ghost. It comes through and it cleanses us. That's why if we baptize somebody that's not really ready, Joseph Smith says you might as well baptize a sack of sand. Because <coughs> nothing has really happened until the baptism of fire comes. I remember years ago when the Old Church of was teaching us about that remission of sins and that baptism of fire, and that it's not a one-time event that it actually happens. Constant kind of thing that baptism of fire. Yeah, and if we're coming, if we're coming to the sacrament with a with broken hearts and contrite spirits, that that remission of sins can be happening on a weekly basis if we prepare ourselves. But it's not by the water; it's by the. You know, I, I love my little grandson. That when we were baptizing uh, his cousin a couple weeks ago, he's sitting on my lap and he goes, as he come as we finish the baptism, he says. Now he isn't bad anymore. 
Well, yes, that's the idea. That's where we're going. Okay. So this is where the baptism of fire comes, and this is where the solidification of all these covenants happens, and, and the sealing process occurs. Now, the spirit of Elijah, once those... Once those covenants have been made, think about Lehi standing at the tree of life, and he eats the fruit, and this is so great. What's the next thing he does? Where's my family? Where you know he's filled with that baptism of fire kind of thing, spirit of Elijah. The next thing is, I want to reach out and find my family and bring them to what I have. And maybe I'm letting you. I'm worried about you because you wouldn't come. You know, it's just that worry about family. And that's why Elijah, the spirit of Elijah ends up being the turning of hearts, the children to the fathers, depending on which translation you're looking at, which one, because it's, it's all there. The, the turning of the hearts of the children to the fathers, and the hearts of the fathers to the children. And you read the first part of the Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon is there to turn the hearts of the children to what? To the covenants made to the fathers. As covenant Israel, we made who made the covenants? We have the word covenant. Who made the original covenant with Israel? Abraham. That's the idea. In other words, we're supposed to turn our hearts, teach our children, teach our family to remember what? The covenants made to Abraham. You can have all of that, all the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in a sealing setting. With the power of Elijah and the burning um, baptism of fire that comes with that. Okay? And then, oh, so this then has to be done under the auspices of? Yeah, the Melchizedek priesthood. Okay? And once all of this is done, we, the Elias goes out, prepares, recognizes, teaches them, gets them to covenant. Now they're going to come back. And now that Elijah is going to seal the families and everything is done, now we are prepared for the third spirit, which is the spirit of the Messiah, when he then comes to his temple at the last day. And we will present a church prepared for him that is where the covenants have been made. Okay? How are we doing so far? A little heavy? Okay. All right. Now we're prepared. We have 40 minutes. Okay. So now let's pull all of this together. We've set the table historically and spiritually. Yeah. Compare a little bit the office of the presiding bishop of the church and the bishops and the ward. Like it has a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah, because we because technically the bishop, uh, as we look in the in the uh, doctrine covenants, the, the bishop is that an autistic priesthood office? No, it's an ironic priesthood office. He is He's the head Aaronic priesthood. He's the head preparer to make sure he's the judge in Israel. The judge in Israel ends up being an, an Aaronic priesthood office. Now we make the Melchizedek priesthood because also under this setting they also are supposed to administer all the Melchizedek responsibilities that go on inside the ward. But yeah, the bishop of the church is now going to have the same responsibilities. It's going to be the head preparer. And, and the, the the young man's president, who's the head of Ronnie Priesthood guy, is going to work under his direction. Cool. Okay, now, like I said, we've got 40 minutes. 
Let's pull it all together. Uh, let's turn, if we can now, to Luke 1. Because we haven't even cracked the Scriptures yet, have we? So, what do, we, what do we know about Luke? Physician. He's trying to gather information. For as much, he says, as many have taken in hand to set for the declaration of those things, uh, even as they were delivered unto them, uh, it seemed good to me also, having a perfect understanding of these things, to write to thee in order. And he's actually, Luke and Acts were actually written to the same guy, Theophilus. I'm glad you asked. I, I did a, I did a number of research on this, and and there's a growing belief among scholars. There's a number of possibilities of who Theophilus could be. The more the more there's a growing consensus among scholars because of the things that we're going to talk about that Theophilus was actually Theophilus ben Anias, uh, who was a high priest of the temple and a Sadducee that was investigating the church. So that means that it, he's he, and it, that makes him he's the uh, brother to Caiaphas, this guy, so that's, that's the son of the Vanias. Yeah, that's the that's the belief. That's who Theophilus. That the belief is that's who Theophilus is. So Luke is actually trying to teach him about these things. Somebody interested in the church who's caught got caught up in all the Greek stuff. But, so they don't believe in supernatural things and everything. So now he's going to start laying out the evidence. And he does it in Luke and he does it in Acts. And originally these were two, this was one book, Luke to Acts. Under the, under the pen of uh, Luke. Okay, so. And I love this in verse 4. He's going to teach him all this that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. What's Luke acting under the, the spirit of? Elias. I'm going to teach you so that if you'll accept it, you'll make covenants. Okay. There was, in the days of Herod the Great, the king of Judea, a certain priest by the name of Zacharias, in the course of Abia. Uh, now, we need to recognize, again, just a little bit more information, um, uh, a course, th- think of the word quorum. There were 24 quorums of Levitical priests. 24 quorums. The first one was Abia. Zacharias is a member of the Abia quorum. Why is that important? Well, what happened is because the, it was the job of the, the Levitical priest to go in and take care of the temple, uh, they, they would get, they would serve for about eight days in the temple, and then the other next quorum would come in and take it. It's like, who gets to clean the building this week? You know, and we're just going to take turns. Okay? Now, there's so many, there are 24 courses, 24 quorums, and there's a lot of priests in each quorum that if you're going to do that, 
then the courts of Abia only got two times a year to actually be the officiators at the temple for the burnt offerings and, the and moving the burnt offerings to the altar of incense and all of that. They get twice a year. So if there's a lot of priests, how are you going to determine which priest gets to be, from your quorum, gets to be the guy on a given day? You've only got a week. You've got two weeks in a year. If you look at, uh, it's just right there in 5, Abia. Okay, look at verse 9. According to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn the incense. How are they going to find it? Who's going to get it? By lots. They're going to draw lots. Now we think, well, that's, that's kind of random. There's a couple of ways to draw lots. One is, is that we're going to put the straws in the hand. Whoever gets the short straw, you drew the, sh you get the lot or the long straw. However, that's going to work. Another way to do it is to take a series of sticks, uh, and you're actually going to throw them in the air, and then when they land, whoever it's pointing at has drawn the lot. Now that's kind of random, isn't it? Why would you believe that God would designate by lot anything? Didn't, wasn't there one of the uh, apostles that was yes. by lot? Yes, absolutely. This is how we're going to determine who the new apostle is after the, the death of uh, Judas Iscariot. And we're going to draw lots. By random? Not if you believe that God directs how the lots fall. And that's what they did. How Lehi and the boy, how Lehi's son's going to figure out who's going to go in and go after the plates of Laban? They're going to draw lots, meaning that God, there's a belief that God will direct how the lots fall. And it went to the eldest son, and it's like, well, of course, because God would direct that the eldest son should be where want to go get the brass plates. It's drawing of the lots. Okay, a lot we could say about. Lots. Lots and lots. Um, Alright. So he's drawn, he's drawn the lot. Now, they're both righteous before God. They're, they're both Levites. Uh, they're walking and they're and they're blameless, they but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. Okay, now let's stop for a second. Haven't we heard this story before? How many times in the Bible, who else is barren? It's about everybody, right? Love, 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 like who? Sarah. Hannah. Rachel. Rebecca. Slow. Now, these are Levites. Okay, they studied the law, they know their Torah. So on one side, barrenness is a sign of great kids come from barren women. But on the other side, if you're just barren, it's probably a, a rebuke of God. You've done it's a curse. You've done something wrong. Is that more of a tradition, or is that? Yeah, there's not. That's it's an oral tradition. It's just if you're barren, and by, by the way, there are some some societies today that still struggle with that idea. Not that we never do that in the church, but we haven't been blessed with children, so we're okay. 
So we get this barrenness, and it, it would be well known. So Elizabeth is, is in her old age. Now, by the way, there's also a practical side. If you're going to have kids, somebody's also going to be around to take care of you later, right, as you get old. So there's also a distressing part. So how long has she been praying for a child? Oh. Yeah, we don't know exactly how old Elizabeth was, but we certainly know, I mean, like Sarah at 90 and that. These guys pray a long time, over and over and over. Now, if you are if you are Zacharias and you have drawn the lot to go into the temple, given the amount of priests there are and twice a year and 24 quorums and all that kind of stuff, how many times in your lifetime are you going to be able to be the one to actually burn the offering in the temple? Probably this is it. In all likelihood, you might get lucky on the second one, but man, this is it. One time shot. So you got a prayer in his heart? What he's asking for is a miracle. My wife's pretty old. But I do have a tradition in my forefathers that there was Sarah, there was Rachel, there was Hannah, maybe. But now she's really old. But I'll ask anyway. They had no child, uh, came to pass, he executed according to the custom of the high priest. It was his lot to burn the incense. The whole multitude of the people were praying without... Now remember, what he's going to do is that he's going to burn the animal on the altar. It's the burnt offering of the day. And the animal has to be consumed completely. Completely consumed. And the parallel to that, of course, is us going to the sacrament and we're, we're offering our, ourselves. The animal inside us has to be burned to make that covenant. We should be offering a burnt offering every week at the second. We're putting our all on the altar. Okay, so so he's going to get. So then he's going to take that parts of that burnt offering, the coals. He's going to put it in a little golden shovel. He's going to then walk it into the holy place. He's going to put it on the altar of incense. He's going to mix it with some incense. And then it's going to create the sweet smell that will begin to drift up. And that's the, the sins of Israel, the prayers ascending to God, so that they can be forgiven. And everybody's just going to wait. You can't complete the morning thing until the priest goes in, does that thing, and comes back out again. And so that, that's where we are right at that moment. Uh, by the way, before I get too far, but I, I don't want to miss this. In the Book of Mormon, and, and in the New Testament, every, just about everybody in there is either a, an example to follow, or a warning, don't do this. What are we supposed to learn from Elizabeth being barren? What do we learn from her, and from Hannah, and from Rachel, and from Sarah? Patience. Miracles. God's promises are always fulfilled. When God promises that He's going to do something, they're fulfilled. How sometimes we get rotten situations in our lives and we don't need to think of them as a curse. Yes, we're going to struggle through that immediately. We want to make it a curse when it's actually a blessing is coming. Can I suggest one more? Notice what happens. Within these women, they have the ability inside them to give birth. And ultimately they will. 
But it doesn't necessarily happen until they are filled with the Holy Ghost, right? That activates all that ability to do what they were asked to do. Okay? So they have so here's my question. Who else do we know is barren until filled with the Holy Ghost? All of us. We are all barren. As natural men and women, until we are filled with the Holy Ghost that then can produce all the fruit that we are capable of, we're barren. And we're waiting for a miracle. And the miracle is the atonement, the grace that fills us and makes us fruitful. Is that cool? We're all, we're all the barren. Anyway, alright, so... Why we're having a hard time getting through this. Okay. There's just too much good stuff here. It's very cool. Now this story we know, of course. Uh, verse 11. There appeared unto him an angel standing on the right side of the altar. That means that he's standing kind of between the altar of incense and the table of showbread. Uh, the only light in here, by the way. This is a dark, spooky place. The altar of incense is glowing cold. There's a golden candlestick on the left. So you got a couple of candles here, glowing gold, coals here. The, there's a table over here. It's a dark. There's no windows. This is a dark, spooky place. So when the angel shows up, this is a little bit like you've been in a dark movie theater, and you open the door to go outside. And you're, ah! Your eyes just aren't used to this. So this angel of light suddenly shows up in this dark, spooky place. Zachariah Simon, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. Yeah, I'll bet. The angel said unto him, Fear not, thy prayer is heard, thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son. Now, why don't you picture this, though? Because he's a, look, look what he's going to tell him. Verse 14, you're going to have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice. 15, he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll drink no wine or strong drink. He's going to be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. He's going to have this baptism before he's even born. Wow, this is great stuff. Many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord. He's going to act in the power of Elias. All this great stuff. He'll go before in the power of Elias. And ultimately, he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children because he's going to prepare them for Elijah. Now, so he's telling all this great stuff. You're going to have a son. He's going to be so great. Look at, look at uh, 18. I don't think Zacharias heard any of that. I think that he's like, wow, this great stuff is happening. And Zacharias is sitting there. What's he saying in 18? My wife's going to have a son. Really? I think he's like, <laughs> Now, he remembered it enough to be able to write it down later, so we'll have it. But I think at that moment, all he was hearing was, Elizabeth's going to have a baby? After all these years? I'm an old man. Oh, I couldn't go. I know. Which is so fun. Have you ever have you ever really wanted something bad and you prayed for it and when it looks like you're going to finally get it, you don't necessarily believe it? Because you've been asking for it for so long? Now, I have to believe. Who's standing in front of it? Gabriel. Who is? Noah. 
He's second in authority only to Abraham. <laughs> this guy is awesome. And, and I got to think, this is, this is bugging poor Noah just a little bit. Because look at it. He goes, because I just told you all these great things this kid's going to do, and you're looking at me going, Elizabeth's going to have a baby? <laughs> I can't get past the idea. What else did you say? Oh, yeah, she's going to have a baby. I just can't get past this. Look at Gabriel. And the, and the angel answering him, verse 19. <clears throat> I am Gabriel. <laughs> Knock it off. <laughs> I am Gabriel. You think I'm just going to do I think I'm making it up. <laughs> You've been asking. I'm telling you your prayers are going to be answered. And you're wondering how this is going to work. <laughs> Who am I? Well, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God and am sent to speak unto thee and show thee these glad tidings. What's wrong with you? I'm Gabriel. I'm sure he was a bit humble too. Yes. He can't be in the presence of the Lord. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> Maybe that's the way I would do it. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Okay. I'm sure he's thinking it. He's got to be thinking it. Yes, yes, yes. 20. Now. ding Now, behold, <laughs> thou shalt be dumb. I, I think that's a double meaning. <laughs> You're going to act dumb. You will be dumb. <laughs> Now, to Zachariah's credit, when was the last time angels showed up in the temple? When was the last time that angels showed up and dealt with the children of men? Prior to the Babylonians. And they were wicked before then. That's why Lehi had to leave. We're going to go way back probably to Solomon and everything else. So part of the problem here is that there's no tradition that Angels come and the miracles happen. It's in the distant past. It seemed to happen to them. It doesn't necessarily mean it happens now. Well, and that's the same way that people react to the idea of prophet now. Yeah. So negatively, the prophets back then, it was a long time ago. It doesn't happen now. Right. Don't you think this was not just a punishment for Zachariah, but... It was a sign to everyone that this child he had was going to be special. There you special. go. Hold on, hold on to that idea for just a second. Because that, I think that's going to be the real purpose here uh, behind why it is that he can't speak. Yeah. Although this makes me think that sometimes we may receive uh, inspiration to do something that's out of the norm for other people. It's not wrong. But it's just not what we're used to doing. Extreme, and, and again, it's just not been a tradition of angels for a long time. And uh, the, the, he might have been asking, but maybe he didn't just think it was really going to happen. Yeah, he's probably feeling that more for his wife. Yeah. Believe her. Yeah, she has a hard time getting around, and I can't believe she's going to be pregnant. Yeah, she's just having a hard time. Yeah. Okay, now. I, I, I do like the idea that there's a reason he needed to be done because he's not going to necessarily tell people what happened. We're going to find out that he kept it to himself, as did Elizabeth. 
There's a, there's a secret here. There's going to be a reason, I think, for the secret. Um, now, 21, the people waited for Zacharias, marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple for he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. He couldn't talk, but he wasn't necessarily telling them what had happened. He just had seen a vision. That's fascinating. So there is this, so there's a sense among all the people that might have been at the temple that day, this priest came, wow, what was his name, Zacharias? Yeah. He came out and he was, he could talk when he went in, he couldn't talk when he came out, and he's saying something miraculous happened in there, he's not telling us what it is. Uh... 23 came to pass as soon as the days of his ministration, eight days, were accomplished. He departed to his own house after those days. Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. Why is she hiding? If, if, he, if this has been a reproach that she's been barren, I mean, wouldn't she want to walk around in the marketplace and go, Look! The Lord has blessed me. I'm no longer reproachful. Look! But she's hiding for five months. Why would she do that? He's not telling anybody. She's hiding. Adjusted to the idea of herself. I think that's part of it. I can't even picture me pregnant. Uh, to protect the baby from, from what? There, there's a miracle that has happened here. Is there a danger here with the prevailing with Herod the Great? We know ultimately there will be, right? There will be the slaughter of the innocents to take out John and also to take out the Savior. And John's going to go into the wilderness. The Savior's going to go to Egypt. They've got to get him out of town for the slaughter of the innocents. So there's a very real danger here. Maybe there's something else going on and I've got to answer questions I'm not ready to... That's a Mary thing also. Okay? We don't know completely... Yeah? See, I think that out, I think that entered into it as well. After all these years, what if she goes to the marketplace and goes, "See, I'm pregnant." Uh, I remember kind of a sad moment that, that Cindy and I had when we first uh, got married. Uh, we had a miscarriage, but we'd already told people we were getting pregnant, and we were and we were pregnant. And so we ran into some people in the mall, and they were like, "Oh, we heard you were pregnant." No, we lost it. Oh, bad moment. Kind of awkward. Well, I wonder if there was a chance of something like that where she wants to really make sure she's going to have it. But I do think that there, over time, it is interesting that John stays quiet, she stays quiet, and then ultimately, look, look what's going to happen. We'll just jump over to... Um, when the time comes when the baby's actually born... Uh, and they take the baby to be named and circumcised, uh, John's still not talking. Or Zacharias still isn't talking. And in a, in a synagogue, where are the women going to be? 
back of the bus, off to the side, so the men are going to take care of this. So the, the rabbi is going to say, what's the, son's, what's the boy's name? Uh, we're going to name him John, like his father. I love how Cleon Skousen said this. He, he, he says, uh, we're going to name him Zacharias, just like his dad. This is the only kid he's going to have. This is the only shot to have name Zacharias. And then uh, Elizabeth, from somewhere in the back, is going to go, His name should be John! <laughs> well, that's a breaking of protocol. So then they go, oh, now we better ask Dad. Okay, Zacharias, what should his name? And then he's going to say, they asked, he asked for a writing table. He said his name is John. They marveled all. His mouth opened immediately. His tongue loosed. And look at 65. And fear came on all that dwelt round about them. Fear? Why? Not only that. So now that it's kind of amazing that after nine months this guy's talking again. But why fear? Now you begin to see maybe why it is they had to hold this child. Can't hide this child. Yeah. Yes. What matter? What? What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. There's something because now we know our history, right? Barren women that are elderly, and they finally have a baby. Who do we know is the result of that? Ah, gosh, that's Isaac's and Jacob's and Joseph's and those guys. Wow. What what kind of kid is this? And then it's and and. these, look at 65. And all these sayings were noised about throughout all the hill country of Judea. This becomes a big event. Everybody now knows who Zacharias is, who Elizabeth is, and who John is. And we know that that's going to put the child at risk. So it will make sense years later when he's out baptizing, it's like, well, you're that John. We remember you. Is it a possibility that the Jewish people, the pastors, could have also thought this might be the Messiah? Yes. In fact, they're going to ask him that, aren't they? When he's actually out baptizing, they're going to say, Who are you? And he's going to say, I'm not that, I'm not that Messiah who should come. Are you Elias? And he's going to say, in the inspired version, by the way, Yes, I am. But I come here ahead of time to prepare the Lord. That's why I'm serving in the the office of an Elias to prepare the way for the Lord because he's coming. And then he's in the middle of baptizing when the Messiah shows up. But that's miraculous people come from barren women like that. Okay? All right. Then then we're going to get from uh, Zacharias a whole of uh, beautiful knowledge that we're going to run out of time for. Now, let me let me jump ahead there. Because we got ten minutes. Now the, the story shifts. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, verse 26, was sent from God unto the city of... Galilee named Nazareth. Nazareth was a little blip on the map. It sits at the top of a rock quarry. 
little thing up, 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 and it doesn't even show up on any of the big maps of the time. Just a very inconsequential place. But there were in this place uh, direct descendants of David, of the house of David. And this is where we're going to get Joseph and Mary, or Miriam. Um, now, in the, the time remaining, I want to do two things. Because um, we know that what happens at this point is that... Um, In, a, in addition to, to Miriam, Mary finding out that she's going to have a baby, she's also told about this, uh, the, about her cousin Elizabeth. And she's going to make her way down there. But she really can't tell anybody about what's going on. Okay? It's making clicking noises. I don't know what that means. It's going to blow up. It's you think it's the microphones? Too close together. So if we take this and we put it maybe over here. Okay, seems to be happy so far. Okay, all right. Okay, now I just want to show you this, this is a church video, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have uh, Mary, Miriam, and Elizabeth. And at the end of this, uh, Mary is going to quote what's called the Magnificat. And it is the list of her feelings about uh, uh, who's coming in her womb. Now, I don't believe really that she said it right at the moment with Elizabeth. I think this is from her private writings. Uh, but the way this is presented here is just beautiful. And, and it puts it all in, in context. So let's, let's go with that. The Magnificat, if you don't know, is a, um, in a lot of churches, it, the Magnificat is, is what uh, Mary's going to speak in response to Elizabeth. <clears throat> it's her feelings about all of that. And in a lot of churches, part of the liturgy, the Magnificat is quoted on a regular basis on a Sabbath day. Because it's so beautiful. It's, it's it, Hebraic poetry. Yeah. Who is Miriam? Miriam. Uh huh. Yeah, that's the name she would have been known by. Uh, Joseph and Miriam will give uh, birth to Yeshua. Yeshua. Uh, that's the names, only names they would have heard. Mary is the Greek, as is Jesus is the Greek. Okay. All right.
So, share with you something that uh, Jake Ozaki uh, said about Mary, and I think that's this probably a good place to kind of finish. We're used to thinking of the Annunciation as the beginning of the joyous celebration of Christmas, that that we focus on Mary's joy, which I'm sure she felt, and on the great gladness of the Savior's birth. <clears throat> we are not so used to thinking of this season as a time of loss for Mary. But it was a loss. She was a righteous young woman 
but she was bound to lose her reputation among her family and friends and those who knew her in Nazareth. What else could they think when they saw her pregnant, but that she had been unchaste? The last line of the Annunciation, and the angel departed from her. In other words, the angel didn't take the rabbi aside for a quiet chat about this very special young woman he had in town. He didn't whisper to the chief merchants that Mary was going to be remembered till the end of time. And while their names, and while their names would barely survive their own generation. The angel was not there at the well when Mary went for water after she came back from visiting Elizabeth, her body already rounded with a six-month pregnancy. She didn't explain to the other women, shocked and scandalized and whispering to each other behind their hands, that Mary was a chosen vessel of the Lord. Nobody explained to girls younger than Mary that she was the living embodiment of faith. Furthermore, Mary didn't explain it either. She obviously didn't explain it even to Joseph because Joseph was the one person in whom the angel did come to tell him that his faith in Mary was not misplaced. So yes, I think we have to admit that despite the joy, this was a season of loss and of mourning. I just don't think we have any idea of the pain that it would have gone through between her and Joseph between her family, between the people of the town, from the rabbi, and she's keeping all this in her heart. She's not telling anybody. She was not supposed to. How could she? I think about it a lot of times with us, where sometimes our motives might be misunderstood. Sometimes we're doing the things that we feel like we've been directed by the Lord, and we take scorn even maybe sometimes from people in our own world from family who don't understand why we're doing what we're doing, but we have to do what we've been directed to do. That doesn't mean there's an automatic explanation for it, and we have to endure a season of scorn and questions that get asked of us. I think Mary is a great example for us about hanging in there, that in the end, even though she would have been, she would have faced all that scorn, she says in the Magnificat, uh, one day all generations will call me blessed. That she had to hang on to that. I would think after everything that she went through in Nazareth. So ultimately, uh, as we look at this, I, I just I just think we can't keep enough praise onto Mary and Elizabeth and the things that they went through. Zacharias, Zacharias would ultimately give up his life and be killed in the temple uh, rather than give up the location of his son. And it's a great foundation for us as we move forward. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name.